I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. Fat talk, body comments, and weight and appearance-based bullying are disturbingly common. However, the biggest problem may actually be our immunity to it. Not immunity to the pain, which is profound, but rather immunity to registering it as a form of violence deserving of immediate intervention. While bullying is explicit and arguably most harmful, even seemingly innocuous comments such as, ugh, I feel so fat today, are cause for extreme concern. When we allow, quote, fat talk, or body-based teasing to carry on without naming it as a truly injurious event, we create spaces and cultures where the majority of folks don't feel safe to just exist without bettering or striving to fix or hating their bodies and ultimately themselves. We also silently contribute to people's difficulty understanding why they have been so deeply injured by something That wasn't such a big deal anyway, right? For those of you listening who think this may be an extreme position, just because we're used to hearing this stuff does not make it okay, nor does it mean it doesn't cause profound harm to millions and millions of human beings, maybe even you, or maybe even your child. Take it from a therapist who has heard the stories of so many survivors of moments like these— that plant seeds for lifelong suffering, unnecessary suffering. If only a grown-up like you could have been there to see something and say something. Dr. Jessica Saunders, a feminist-trained developmental psychologist, joins me today for a conversation about all of this, including what her research tells us about where folks' blind spots are, how to connect the teachers in your children's lives to promising yet extremely underutilized trainings that make a difference, and why the world needs more feminist-trained developmental psychologists if we want to see our research efforts contribute to a more equitable and just world. Jessica, welcome to the show. I wonder if you could help us understand like what we need to know about developmental systems theory to understand what you do, how you think, and kind of the rest of this conversation, because I imagine that's the lens that you look at a lot of uh, your research through. Yeah, absolutely. So developmental systems theory is actually a pretty complex name for a simple, though oftentimes profound idea that we can't really separate the individual from their context or from their environment. So according to developmental systems theory, that relationship between an individual and their context Uh, is bidirectional and one always influences the other and neither can be studied in isolation. So in all the work I do, I can't just look at the individual factors. I have to also look at the contextual or environmental factors that are at play. So you're probably familiar with that longstanding debate of nature versus nurture, Mm -hmm. Um, but rather than debating nature and nurture as developmental systems under the developmental systems lens, um, we propose that you can't separate those two. So both nature or genetics and the environment or nurture are always going to be at play. Mm. So there's no chicken egg. 
Correct. Yes. <laughs> the, the chicken and the egg happen at the same time. Exactly. Which as a social worker by training, I feel so connected to that, right? Like the person in the environment, it's impossible to really ever separate all these things out. And I mean, that environment, so much of what we talk about here, or I talk about here with guests like yourself, is this environment that we all live in is one that is just sort of infected by weight stigma, no matter where it is, if it's on the street, in the doctor's office, and at schools. And I know Absolutely. your research has looked at this. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what you've learned specifically about weight-related teasing in schools and weight stigma in schools? Yeah, absolutely. So in school settings, weight bias most often takes the form of weight-based teasing or uh, weight-based bullying. Students of all body sizes, in fact, may experience some sort of weight-based teasing at school. And teachers' implicit weight bias that they might come to the classroom with can negatively influence their attitudes and their subjective evaluation of the academic capacities of students who might appear in larger bodies. In terms of the research that's been done, there was a recent uh, systematic literature review, which is a literature review that just sort of condenses all of the prior uh, knowledge on the topic, uh, looking at weight bias in education settings. And that uh, systematic review identified that the experience of weight bias uh, really negatively influences the educational experiences of children with large bodies across all levels of education. Um, And it also really impacts students' well-being. Also, uh, weight-based bullying may be a coded way to bully other marginalized populations at school. As, for example, LGBTQ plus youth of all sizes experience higher weights of weight-based victimization than uh, non-LGBTQ plus uh, students. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, students report bullying based on their weight more frequently than bullying based on um, all sorts of other domains like academic ability, physical ability, even race, religion, or class. Yeah, I think the first season we talked to Rebecca Poole. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I was even surprised to learn that this was, I think it's the number one form of bullying in schools. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. I believe so. Yes. And and that so many schools don't even have anti-bullying policies that pertain specifically to weight-based bullying, which feels like a real blind spot just in our systems. Right. Absolutely. Especially because weight-based bullying then goes on to have uh, cascading consequences across the lifespan. So um, if students experience weight-based bullying in their early elementary years, um, they may go on to continue to experience weight bias. Um, And associated with that are things like increased stress, symptoms of depression, decreased motivation to engage in physical activity just for their overall well-being, and ultimately a reduced life expectancy. So it is a really Mm. serious topic that needs to be brought more to the forefront, I think, in schools. Yeah. Whenever it comes up, I mean, there's something just about confronting the harsh realities of the world we live in. And and also the kids can be mean and people can be mean, but kids are going to be mean. And if it's not about one thing, it'll be about another thing. And I think sometimes the conversation stops there, like a little bit like, uh, oh, there's nothing much we can do about this. Mm-hmm. But I think kids about will be kids, right? Ki- kids will be kids. Right. <laughs> I mean, and I don't know, like, is there a space to say that kids will be kids? I mean, there's something kind of futile about that expression, right? Well, I think it highlights just how pervasive, I guess, for lack of a better word, these stigmas are in that weight-based 
stigmatization is one of the last remaining, like, quote unquote, acceptable forms um, of stigma to express, right? It's okay to make jokes about fat people on TV or uh, mm. to make comments about people's bodies when we see them without really giving it a second thought, whereas the other forms of stigma have seen more of a call to action, uh, if you will. But uh, weight bias is still really just pervasive. Yeah, it is. And that that implicit bias that you were talking about that most of us have. So of course, teachers would have it too. It's not like teachers would have necessarily more than any other adult. But I guess there's a particular opportunity here to look at that sort of teacher's role. I mean, I imagine in lots of different contexts when a kid might be suffering or struggling, a teacher is in this really special position to I don't know if intervene is the right word, but certainly you hear that all the time, make a difference in a child's life, right? And so because of the research you've done, I'm eager to hear a little bit about the state of teachers' preparedness to effectively address this stuff when it does arise in the classroom, because it's got to arise. or on the courtyard, right, at recess. Yeah, for sure. So probably comes as not a very big surprise, but many teachers actually do report feeling unprepared to engage in um, both health discourse in the classroom, to talk about health and wellness in the classroom, and to intervene when there are some forms of weight-based bullying in the classroom. So in a study of teachers who manage um, health education curriculum from about 10 years ago, uh, researchers did find that the teachers reported discomfort and barriers to teaching and talking about weight in health education. But it pops up all the time, right? So for example, teachers responsible for delivering health education themselves are often members of a high-risk population for increased body dissatisfaction, dieting, and disordered eating behavior. Um, So that really puts them at risk for their own weight bias and for the potential for that weight bias to affect their students, uh, largely inadvertently, but those ideas do trickle down. So those different personal values, attitudes, um, and experiences regarding wellness are going to impact the educators' comfort with and efficacy in teaching or modeling health to their students and in their ability to have conversations about bodies and what it means to be well and healthy in the classroom. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me that teachers would be so ill-prepared in the way that so many of us are so ill-prepared, right, to model body positivity or body neutrality or body liberation or whatever it is that we're we're trying to do here. Um, Absolutely. That there's certainly no training in social work school. There's no training around that in, I imagine, in your own PhD program, no. right? Like, I can't imagine that that exists in teachers, master's programs or certification programs, this sort of how to model, but how, how would we even call it? What would the optimal thing be? I guess we'll get to that in a moment, but what is it that they're not prepared to do if you had to boil it down? To manage discussions about what it means to be healthy and well. And as a follow-up to that, to teach children not to equate health with weight. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we really want to help teachers do, help parents do, and then help parents help teachers do, right? I think this season in particular, I'm trying to create each episode as something that's really tangible that we could give to a a parent could take and say, 
please listen to this, you know, or maybe have a teacher or a kind of PTA association listen to this so that they can kind of bring these ideas into their school communities. And so on that note, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the comprehensive school health framework that it seemed like in your research that this proposes a bit of a solution. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Sure thing. So there is emerging evidence through some research that I've conducted that the comprehensive school health approach to talking about weight in the classroom does equip teachers to more adaptively handle instances of weight-related teasing among students and also to manage discussions around health and weight. So I worked with a team of researchers in Western Canada and looked at how effective a brief six-week-long course that was based on the principles of comprehensive school health was in changing how pre-service, that's what they call student teachers in Canada, so the equivalent of student teachers in the States, um, how these pre-service teachers felt equipped to handle conversations around weight in the classroom. So they took this course during their final semester of their undergraduate classroom training, and they had an introduction to comprehensive school health. And I'll get to what that means in a minute, but just for the course overview, they had that introduction to comprehensive school health. They received classroom instruction on how to take a weight-neutral approach to health Mm. uh, and then learned about things like the promotion of healthy relationships um, and the promotion of positive mental health so that we're really targeting all different aspects of well-being. And then finally, health promotion across cultures. So they had exposure to all these different areas. And for that week on the weight neutral approach to health, they engaged with pedagogical experiences to first improve their critical consumption of information related to weight in their daily lives, to engage in self-reflection on their relationship with their bodies, and then finally to uh, really critically examine those experiences of elementary students with large bodies in schools. So they had this class experience um, and in their final semester, um, and we're hoping that they bring that experience with them to the classroom and that these messages uh, sort of trickle down to the children that they interact with on a daily basis. And did they trickle down? That's next on our research agenda, (laughs) Um, but we did look to see how their attitudes and perceptions um, of this weight teasing changed from the beginning of the semester to the end of the semester. Mm -hmm. And um, we found a positive and adaptive change, which suggested that by exposing these pre-service educators to these developmentally sound methods of delivering health-related content, their attitudes towards weight-related stigma did become more adaptive and more health-promoting. So we saw positive changes in how they perceived their responsibility to respond to the teasing and in how serious and detrimental they viewed the teasing incident to be. That's very important what you're saying because in the culture, right, we all are kind of used to, like you were using earlier, the example of laughing at a fat joke. And so when we're kind of conditioned to think that's normal and that this type of oppression is somehow not as oppressive as any other form of oppression that we might be a little bit further along in unpacking or understanding, that this course, it sounds like it primed these teachers 
to then recognize, oh, what's happening is actually really, really concerning, as opposed to maybe not registering that this is really concerning because it's sort of falling in that in line with like things that we kind of just accept are part of the way of life and nothing that really needs to be called out. I mean, is that a fair reduction of what you're saying? Yes. And I think that's why we saw that change in the more adaptive thinking patterns around the incident. So we had teachers read a little story about weight-based teasing happening on the playground uh, and then had teachers respond to that to a series of 10 or so different questions. And I think at the beginning of the semester, teachers didn't take the incident that they read about um, as seriously and view it as impactful as it probably would have been to the uh, fictional child um, as they did at the end of the semester. This is reminding me of this fantasy I have that I don't know if it's a fantasy. I mean, it, I think it could come true, but this fat talk, right? Like when it's so common for all of us adults and kids or teens, anyway, tweens to say things like, Oh, I'm so fat. i feel so fat. And I don't ever remember that language being looked at or responded to as this is not acceptable to speak this way. It's almost like, well, within your rights to say whatever you want and somehow saying you're fat, which is essentially complaining that you feel like you may look like someone else that's living in this body that is, you know, maybe experiencing some kind of marginalization, right? I wonder if part of what your work is inviting us to do is look at other things that are sort of acceptable and increasing our awareness and inviting people to maybe make new rules around what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. Yes, absolutely. So the comprehensive school health framework consists of four pillars that are interrelated and help us to um, better understand like what health means um, and what it means to have healthy schools. So those four pillars are teaching and learning, social and physical environment, healthy school policy, and partnerships and services. So there are areas within each of those pillars that we can infuse a weight-neutral lens uh, Mm -hmm. to improve health in the classroom. And the quote-unquote fat talk Mm -hmm. uh, would fall into that social and physical environment. So changing the way that teachers are talking, the way that students are talking to one another would help to improve that physical and social environment. And we know that there's, again, that bi-directionality, right? So there's a reciprocal relationship between that environment and how it affects the students within it. Yeah, that this type of talk, it creates a lack of safety. Yes. Emotional safety. It's not there if we're allowing people to use this word really in any other way but a neutral descriptor. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's very detrimental. And I mean, is there anything else that is very detrimental that you want to kind of flag for, you know, maybe a teacher listening um, or a parent listening that wants to deliver, you know, bring this episode to a teacher, like anything that you want to flag that is also detrimental and that is also kind of normal that we might do or not do, but that we really need to keep our alert up for? Yes. So I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute. Go <laughs> right ahead. Take all it. All the different aspects of learning that could uh, negatively affect children in larger bodies, as well as to sort of promote weight bias. Um, so I know within uh, curricula these days, there are often lessons on healthy eating. And it's really important for those lessons to 
emphasize those positive messages about the like health benefits that are associated with healthy eating um, and avoid perhaps increasing food anxiety for these students who are not typically responsible for grocery shopping and for food preparation and um, avoiding that dichotomy uh, within those lessons about uh, rigid groups like healthy food and junk food, but instead focusing on exposing students to uh, new kinds of food, learning about where different foods come from or what foods are enjoyed in a cultural celebration. So really taking that lens away from the good versus bad paradigm and expanding students' horizons about what foods are out there in the world. Also, teachers should avoid um, having students calculate their own BMI or keep track of uh, the food that they've consumed or the calories that they've consumed or burned through exercise for learning activities. Teachers that discuss sexual health and puberty can also normalize the accumulation of fat as a normal process during puberty. Yes, um, per- yes, Particularly yes, yes. for girls because this is a vulnerable developmental stage associated with the onset of body dissatisfaction and disordered eating. Yes, I just had to say yes, 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 because this is the most, I mean, not the most, but arguably one of the more vulnerable times for the development of eating disorders, disordered eating, and just, you know, that general, like, disembodiment that starts to happen. So I love that little reminder. Yeah, and also making sure that like textbooks, the literature that is uh, used and taught from media, handouts, posters in the classroom, vet those for weight bias um, and make sure that they reflect all forms of body diversity in a positive light. So ensuring that books with large bodied characters are portrayed as just as anybody else, right? Rather than as villainous, gluttonous, or disliked by others. Making sure that those stereotypes aren't being perpetuated uh, through the different materials that exist in your environment. Yeah, and I would say as someone that helps, I will sometimes help folks in schools kind of do that vetting. One of the things, of course, is that some of it's not avoidable. So at least being able to help our children think critically about those problems, right? Sometimes even you'll find a really great resource or a great book that has a great story, but has a kind of problematic piece, a problematic component. And rather than sort of burn the book, I wonder if it's- Discussions about it. Exactly. Teachable moments. Okay, before I move into something that's a little off topic, anything else that you need that all teachers need to know? The last thing that I was going to talk about in terms of creating a positive environment is just really to emphasize that food and exercise can be enjoyable ways of taking care of ourselves. So rather than cajoling students to finish certain foods or to potentially eat differently, which can subtly teach our students to ignore their own body's messages and bodily cues. Teachers and lunchroom supervisors can remind students to listen to their own body's hunger and satiety cues. Likewise, it's also important that like physical education classes or recess and school sports are opportunities for our children to really experience how to joyfully move, how to build friendships and appreciate nature uh, rather than focusing on burning calories, for example. Amen. And all of that, these recommendations that you're giving, are they related at all to the curriculum of the comprehensive school health framework or are these, this is your own distillation? Yes. No, these are directly related to, um, I have a 
paper in progress that will be available for public consumption, hopefully uh, in the next year or so, uh, where we use the comprehensive school health framework to make recommendations for teachers. Um, So most of these recommendations come directly from that. So that's going to be an incredibly valuable resource. And I hope you'll stay connected so that I can help disseminate it. And in the meantime, while we're waiting for that paper, are people able to access the comprehensive school health framework to use or to experiment within their own communities or, or is it not? Yes, it is. There is a comprehensive school health hub uh, mm-hmm. that I can share the link for Yes, um, that has all of these resources, um, both at the college levels. So it has the course resources for how to educate teachers, um, but it also has K to 12 resources for educators. Oh my gosh. Yes, definitely send me that and I'll include them in the show notes. This is kind of going back to what I was saying at the beginning. I think what you're doing, and I think a lot of people listening will agree, is so critical to help bridging this gap between kind of what exists already and what needs to exist to really make our, I mean, sort of the mission of this whole operation here on Full Bloom, the creating this more embodied and inclusive next generation. And I wonder how you might explain what you do as an applied feminist trained developmental psychologist, which just sounds kind of badass, um, <laughs> but how you might explain it to a teenager and why do we need more of you? I mean, I think we do, but maybe you can help make a case for why we need more people to grow up to become applied feminist trained developmental psychologists. Yeah, so we're actually a rare breed. There are not very many applied feminist trained developmental psychologists, but um, in breaking that down, uh, feminist psychologists are psychologists who really strive to understand and undo the different injustices that they see in the world. Uh, So at a really, really basic level, this means pressing for more research on women and minorities and increasing their representation in science. It also... It is also important to feminist psychologists that the voices and lived experiences of these marginalized individuals are centered and shared. Um, So the history of many fields, including psychology, is a little bleak um, and has been really focused on white um, individuals and has been um, primarily driven by men. Um, So as a feminist uh, trained psychologist, I'm seeking to bring in the voices of all these other people um, that haven't been heard previously in the science. Uh, So as a feminist trained developmental psychologist, I conduct research in community-based settings, typically um, rather than in the research laboratory. And my research questions really focus on improving the developmental outcomes or life experiences, more or less, of individuals across the lifespan particularly for women and for individuals from racial and ethnic minority groups. Um, So in doing so, I really strive to create a more equitable and just world through research that I hope will inform policy at multiple levels. So our culture really, um, for your final question there, really needs more feminist trained developmental psychologists uh, for a few key reasons. I'd say the first is again, psychology's longstanding Eurocentric and sexist past. And um, though the field has made great strides in the last few decades, uh, there's still a lot more work to be done, right? There are also still many systemic injustices that affect how individuals interact with their contexts 
and developmental psychologists are really well positioned to provide empirical scientific support to help us to better understand uh, not only these injustices, but also to really try to promote that systems level change. So for example, bringing it back to my work and what we're talking about today, we know that diet culture is really insidious and seemingly everywhere. But as a feminist trained developmental psychologist, looking to eradicate that in uh, whatever ways that I can and help to dismantle diet culture and doing so by looking at both the individual and the contextual factors that are at play there. Yeah, such important work. And uh, thank you. I'm can't tell if I'm surprised that it's a rare breed. I guess I am. I'm, I come from the social work background where this is very much at the heart of the social work training. But right. to think that this is the minority of psychologists that actually take that approach and that are really kind of marrying the field of psychology with social justice, right? Social change. So I hope we've inspired at, le- at least a few a few young people to go on to to follow in your footsteps. Based on your research and, I mean, all of what you study and you see how many negative body experiences exist, right? Body dissatisfaction, self-objectification, and social comparison. Based on what you know, like, what can be altered and improved? Yeah, so this feels like the million-dollar question, uh, just because we know how both diet culture and that thin ideal, muscular ideal um, are all just so pervasive and often at the root of all these different negative body experiences that everybody seems to have. And so disclaimer that I'm just beginning my research career, so... I really am seeking to build a program of research and tackle this question fully and truly in the coming years to get a sense of how we can alter and improve these, um, particularly in young children um, before they become excessively problematic. So, so far, we do know that, uh, for example, the tendency to engage in comparing your body, your food, or your exercise, um, as well as that tendency to self-objectify or look at your body as an object rather than as a holistic being are both really strongly linked to body dissatisfaction and disordered eating. But my research has looked at how those different constructs change during eating disorder recovery and how women start to uh, use social comparisons to promote health and well-being and to uh, stop self-objectifying. So that's just one subgroup of individuals that I've looked at these constructs in. And I'm really eager to learn more about how these shifts happen and ways in which other groups of individuals um, might be able to use, harness those skills, those um, mechanisms uh, to be able to act opposite to diet culture and resist or refocus those um, more negative body experiences. Yeah, ambitious, but so necessary. And I am rooting for you. It's sort of a, a treat to speak with someone at the beginning of their research career and kind of hear what you're what your aspirations are and to continue to check back in with you to see kind of what you're finding along the way. Yes, I look forward to it. Thank you. So before we wrap, did you have a couple of resources that you could share with us and if people want to dig deeper? I did. Um, The first thing that came to mind was Leslie Schilling is a registered dietitian out of uh, Las Vegas. um, And she sends out a weekly newsletter called More Than a Menu, where she includes menus for the week 
particularly I think around dinner time um, that you can follow to have anti-diet dinners Mm -hmm. um, and uh, have exposure to all sorts of different foods. Um, So she provides the menus and the recipes for all those things, as well as resources for ways to counteract diet culture in your day-to-day life, whether they be podcasts or different blogs and links, things like that. So she sends that out every Friday uh, and it's really a great resource. Awesome. Yeah. The other one that I had um, was, I'm sure folks have shared it in the past, but I love the Food Psych Mm. um, Intuitive Eating and Anti-Diet podcast Mm -hmm. um, by Christy Harrison. And I recently encountered a book called Diners, Dudes, and Diets, Mm -hmm. uh, which looks at the gendered lens um, that is often taken to our food consumption. Um, And that's by Emily Contois. Those are great recommendations. And we got the bonus because you, uh, you're you going to hook us up with the Comprehensive School Health Framework. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. The, there's a Comprehensive School Health Hub that I will also share with you all. The Health Hub. Right. This was so, so wonderful. I really appreciate you coming and sharing your wisdom and inspiration for the next generation of feminist trained developmental psychologists. It was great. And I'm always happy to talk to uh, young folks if they're beginning to think about their career and their career aspirations uh, to find out more about how I ended up where I am. Everybody can feel free to contact me. That's a really generous offer. So we will be sure to make you available. Thank you so much. So that's today's show. As always, the Full Bloom Podcast depends on you to rate, review, and share these episodes. This is how more people can find us and join our body positive nurturing movement. Thank you all for listening and tune back in next time for more body positive nurturing wisdom.